New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Now more than ever, there is a need for finding creative ways to tap into our positive emotions, calm ourselves down, elicit our courage and flexibility. In other words, how may we become more resilient? Personal resilience is more valuable than ever in these challenging and chaotic times. In the foreword to Linda Graham's book, Dr. Rick Hansen describes resilience. He writes, Resilience is like the keel of a sailboat. As the winds of life blow, resilience keeps you balanced and moving forward. And when the really big squalls come, and no life is without them, resilience lets you right your boat as soon as possible. Graham points out that we are inundated with external stresses every single day. Today we'll be exploring how to respond with grace and skill when we are under pressure with our guest, Linda Graham. Linda Graham is a licensed psychotherapist and meditation teacher in full-time practice in the San Francisco Bay Area. She integrates her passion for neuroscience, mindfulness, and relational psychology through trainings, workshops, and conferences. She publishes a monthly e-newsletter entitled Healing and Awakening into Aliveness and Wholeness, and weekly e-quotes on resources for recovering resilience archived on our website at lindagram-mft.net. She's the author of Bouncing Back, Rewiring Your Brain for Maximum Resilience and Well-Being. Join us for the next hour as we explore building our core well-being and disaster-proofing our brains with our guest, Linda Graham. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Linda, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm just delighted to be sitting across from you. Linda, let's talk, first of all, about the brain and about uh, the left brain and the right brain, and and what's it all about? (laughs) In terms of resilience, what I think it's all about is the prefrontal cortex, which is what I call the CEO of resilience. So that's the center of, of our executive functioning in the brain. And most people know that that's what we use for decision-making and planning and making good judgments. But it's also what regulates the body 
and our nervous system and our emotions. It's what allows us to attune to other people and to attune to ourselves. It's what allows us to have a sense of insight into who we are, a sense of self-awareness. And it is the structure of response flexibility. And that's what makes it so key for resilience. It's the structure in our brain that allows us to take information from the right hemisphere, emotional processing, social processing, visual processing, and the left hemisphere, all of our logic and language and and symbols, and integrate them so that we can actually make wise decisions. So most of the exercises that I offer in the book are to strengthen the prefrontal cortex to make the brain itself more resilient so that we can be more resilient as we respond to the events of our lives. Now, Linda, when we, when we are first born and our brains are developing, and I know you talk about this in the book, we, that, that earlier brain, that mammalian brain, that lower brain, it, it actually, I think, correct me if I'm mistaken, but it, it, it forms first and it has, has more neural... Um, circuitry or neural contacts with the other part of our brain. I mean, in other words, we have more, we're more easily going to that mammalian brain. Well, I would say it this way. The lower brain, reptilian and mammalian in that kind of terminology, is born fairly ready to go. So we have our capacities of movement and perception. We have our capacities to respond to the people that we're relating to in our very evolutionarily hardwired in survival responses. As the higher cortex develops, which is what would be called the human brain, and that's where we have our capacities for planning and decision-making, as the higher brain develops, it's true that the right hemisphere of the brain develops quicker and earlier than the left hemisphere of the brain. It begins developing in utero, and it continues to be dominant in the brain until we're about two years of age. Then the left hemisphere begins to take over when we're about three years old, and it's pretty much dominant for the rest of our lives except for adolescence, which is why adolescence (laughs) can be so stormy. (laughs) And adolescence is is affected by hormones and things. It's affected by hormones. It's also a time when the brain does a lot of housekeeping and pruning so that cells and circuits that aren't being used are gotten rid of. And so that's partly why adolescence is such a stormy time. The right hemisphere and left hemisphere are literally kind of duking it out for dominance in the brain. Eventually, the left hemisphere comes to be dominant. The prefrontal cortex matures by the time we're about 25 years of age. So then we tend to be much more stable in our brain functioning once we're adults. But in terms of the earlier development, because the right hemisphere develops earlier, it is more neuronally connected to the lower brain. So it gets the messages from the lower brain more strongly and more efficiently. And is this that that negative bias that we tend to have? Very good. So the negativity bias, which is hardwired into the brain, is because the right hemisphere developing earlier, more survival-oriented, is what leads us more to an avoidant, withdrawn approach to our experience. The left hemisphere develops later. Perhaps we have more skills and capacities by then, and it tends to have an approach stance toward experience. So we're more open to learning. Because there are less neuronal connections between the left hemisphere and the lower brain, 
It doesn't do much good to tell ourselves, oh, get off it, because our words are not necessarily communicating with the lower emotional brain. We have to go back through the integration of the right hemisphere and work with emotions in our relationships with ourselves and other people. So part of the reason I so stress strengthening the functioning of the prefrontal cortex is that it actually integrates the input from all these different parts of the brain. It's what regulates the lower brain. So I get it that that there's the left hemisphere, the right hemisphere, and then the prefrontal cortex really can into you just said integrate the whole thing but it's it's we have to do that a bit consciously don't we it's we it we can't just allow it to just do it on its own so let's say that the prefrontal cortex is what integrates everything. So it will integrate the right and left hemispheres. It will integrate the lower brain. All the information coming up from the body and from the midbrain is also just a few cell layers away from the prefrontal cortex. So it is integrating the entire brain. So we want to be able to, um, yes, the higher brain itself is conscious. Even the right hemisphere, which is more associated with visual processing, emotional processing, social processing, that's all conscious. The left hemisphere has more of our words and our language. But all of the cortex is conscious. When we can train our attention on what we want to cultivate or what we want to strengthen, then we're more likely to be able to do it. The brain is receptive and we're able to record and install whatever we're choosing to focus on. So that's why... um, I've said in the book, and I say everywhere I teach, that mindfulness and compassion are two of the most powerful agents of brain change known to science, because that's true, for very different reasons. The mindfulness allows us to focus our attention or trains us to focus our attention, and that's where we can actually um, create new circuitry and learn new experiences. Compassion is one of those pro-social positive emotions that actually helps catalyze a shift from the right hemisphere to the left hemisphere. I think that there's a a quote somewhere about compassion is more uh, vital to us than self-esteem. That's from the research of Kristen Neff, who wrote her book, Self-Compassion. And part of that is that self-esteem is based on doing well and accomplishing things and getting feedback from the world. So self-esteem helps us be more resilient, it does, when things are going well. Self-compassion helps us be resilient any time at all, and especially when things are going poorly. So that's why we can say that self-compassion helps us rewrite ourselves more immediately and sometimes more permanently than self-esteem, because self-compassion is one of those practices that shifts the functioning of our brain. It shifts it from being... The negativity bias, we get contracted into our survival responses, fight, flight, freeze, numbing out, collapsing. We get contracted. Self-compassion, because it activates the caregiving system in the brain, it activates oxytocin, which is the hormone of safety and trust. Because it activates that sense of safety and trust, we're more able to open back out into perception, into perspectives, into possibilities. So self-compassion actually shifts how we view ourselves in the world in that moment and helps create more possibilities, more options. And you use the word rewire. 
Mm-hmm. So what do you mean by rewire? By rewire, I actually mean something different, which is we know that the brain learns and changes and grows from experience. That's how the brain learns and changes and grows. So when we have new experiences and we install the memory of those new experiences into our circuitry, we're actually doing some new conditioning. We're creating new neural circuits and pathways. That's fine. And when you practice some of these positive pro-social emotions like compassion, gratitude, kindness, generosity, delight, love, awe, etc., all those positive emotions will create new circuitry, new patterns of behavior in the brain. Sometimes we've been conditioned to have more negative or less adaptive responses to our experience. And that can happen especially very early on. And so those memories are embedded deeply in our circuitry. In order to rewire those, we actually need to be able to activate the constellation of neurons that hold that memory, bring it to consciousness, and then juxtapose it with a more positive memory or experience or event. And when those two memories are juxtaposed with each other, negative and positive, that juxtaposition causes the neurons to fall apart and to rewire. When we can place a positive experience in our conscious awareness and do that juxtaposition, the neurons can fall apart and rewire and the positive can trump the negative. I'd like for you to give an example of that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that we're listening, uh, we're having a deep dialogue with Linda Graham. She's the author of Bouncing Back, Rewiring Your Brain for Maximum Resilience and Well-Being. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website. That's lindagram-mft.net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Linda Graham. She's the author of Bouncing Back, Rewiring Your Brain for Maximum Resilience and Well-Being. Linda, we're talking about rewiring or, or, or changing our brain neurons, the pathways. So can you give an example of when you say just oppose a negative and a positive? Or mm-hmm. So 
the example that I gave in the book and one that I use very, very often when I'm teaching is to be able to juxtapose criticism with compassion. And whether that's we're experiencing criticism from another person and we need to be kind to ourselves in that moment to be able to deal with that, or whether our own inner critic shows up and we're being pounded by the voices and messages in our own head. You shouldn't do that. Who do you think you are? What are you thinking? And the self-compassion is also a way to antidote that. So we can do it in a more, um, say, cognitive behavioral kind of way. So when you notice a critical message coming up in your mind, you say compassion. You just say the word to break the automaticity of the old pattern. And then you can choose to do something that will remind you of being compassionate towards yourself. When you say choose to do something, what does that mean? Like choose to... You might do a a self-compassion practice, or you might simply even go for a walk and switch the channel in your brain so that you're not hearing those negative messages. So you might do something physical like taking a walk or or do a deep breathing practice right there. Just calm yourself down. Exactly. and, and, And move it off that channel. Right. But to rewire the critic or to rewire our responses to being criticized, that would be done by evoking a memory of being criticized and getting all of the feelings, the emotions, and where those emotions are held in the body, so you're paying attention to the body sensations and the emotions and a visual image and your thoughts about yourself. So you're lighting up the entire network of the memory. What, so you're going to that bad memory, mm-hmm. so that negative memory, mm-hmm. that that disappointment or that whatever it was that that you called up to yourself. Right. And you do that in the context of being mindful of who you are, where you are right now, you're okay right now, and that you're choosing to do this and you choose to do a little teeny tiny part of the memory so you don't overwhelm yourself. And you're offering yourself compassion or maybe even receiving the compassion of someone else if you're working with someone else so that that's a container. There's a mindful self-compassion container even as you bring up something that was problematic or difficult or even traumatizing before because the point is never to re-traumatize yourself. It's to actually be able to rewire the memory. So you evoke that original problematic situation and then you evoke a memory or something that really happened or even in your imagination, that will work as well, something that's positive. And again, the entire network, your thoughts, your feelings, your body sensations, visual images, as much detail as you can. You give your brain as much to work with as possible. And then you can either hold them in simultaneous awareness, if that's possible, or you go back and forth. You toggle back and forth between the negative and the positive, always refreshing and strengthening the positive. Then eventually let go of the negative and just rest in the positive and what that feels like in the body. You go back and you check in on the negative again to see how it's doing, you go back to the positive, eventually the negative can just fade away completely. It's not there anymore. So it's not that we rewrite the actual memory, but we rewire our relationship to it. We rewire our relationship to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that can be very, very powerful. And in fact, when I teach that kind of rewiring technique in the workshops, it's the most powerful technique that people experience. That's what I hear on the evaluations. It makes the most difference. So there, there is an emotional context of this whole way of working. Is that correct? 
So because we remember the body sensations and the emotions of an event, especially a negative traumatizing event, even when we've consciously repressed the fact that we have those memories, they're going to be stored in our body. So you have to evoke the body memory in order to do the complete rewiring. In the book, I talk about rewiring the brain from the bottom up. Because all of our memories are stored in our body. So you activate the body, you activate the feelings from the midbrain, and then you begin to work with it consciously with whatever guided visualizations or meditations or conversations you want to have around it so that you can actually do the rewiring. So that's, um, I do say in the book that very often self help books assume that we have the level of brain functioning that can do all that kind of rewiring. And when I'm strengthening the brain from the bottom up, our somatic resources like hand on the heart and the emotional intelligence resources and our relational resources so that I feel safe and resourced in relationship, by rewiring from the bottom up, then we're actually able to do many of the other techniques that people have been proposing all along. And what you're saying, Linda, then I think it's really an important uh, aspect of memory. I mean, memory is not just words in our head. You're saying that memory actually lives in the cells in our bodies, in our gut, and in our uh, heart, and our solar plexus. I mean, am I correct in that? So the body stores memories in the sense of what movement or impulse might have been needed or might have been helpful in the situation we were in. And sometimes the body actually gets to move that way, and sometimes it doesn't. So that's the flight, freeze. Mm -hmm. Fight, flight, freeze, numbing out and collapsing. Mm -hmm. So very often when we're wanting to rewire memories from stressful or traumatizing events, we have to be able to help the body move in a different direction. That's part of what does the rewiring. And in fact, there's a wonderful exercise that I teach the last part of which is now called Power Posing, and it's taught by Amy Cuddy. She has a wonderful TED Talk. She's at Harvard Business School. And the end of it is you're standing in a Wonder Woman kind of pose or a Tadasana pose in yoga with your hands over your head, and you're feeling very powerful and strong. But the entire exercise would be to begin in the body posture that embodies an emotion that's difficult. Anger, shame, guilt, grief, depression, whatever. And you start with the body there. And, and I want to tell our listeners, you're kind of hunching over and, <laughs> and looking down. And, right. I'm uh, in the collapsed position, yes. which is very often what people want to rewire. And then without thinking, without words, without naming it, you just simply let the body find its way to the opposite posture. Now, very often for people, that will be that power-posing posture. But then you go back and you do the original collapse posture, and then you come back into the power-posing again, which usually feels terrific, and then you come to something in the middle because you want to integrate the previous memory with the new memory. And so people can come to more of a sense of presence and embodiment in their own body that's not troubling to them or problematic to them. So that might be one where we put our hand on our heart. Exactly. I mean, that's that's what I'm I'm thinking. Just as you were going through the uh, putting your hands over your head in that posture, and from the collapse posture, mm -hmm. kind of in the middle is 
Mm-hmm. For me, is like putting the hand on the heart. Well, if I could talk for a minute about hand on the heart, because that's the first thing I teach people. It's very powerful. When you put your own hand on your own heart center, your the warm touch of your hand actually activates neural cells around the heart. There are brain cells around the heart. So you begin to activate those cells. When you breathe deeply into your heart center, you're activating the parasympathetic nervous system, so you're actually calming down the nervous system. If you breathe in a sense of goodness or kindness or ease or peace or safety, that actually also puts the brakes on your negativity responses and it returns your heart to a good heart rate variability, coherent heart rate variability. Then if you remember a moment when you felt safe and loved and cherished by another person or by a pet, and you actually remember that moment, not the whole relationship, just the moment where you felt safe and you let that feeling go through your body and you're actually helping to activate the release of oxytocin in your brain and body so that you come into a sense of safety and trust, you can do that in a minute and it will calm down a panic attack in less than a minute. So it's one of the first things that I teach people because it's one of the most direct. When you cultivate the habit of putting your hand on your heart when there's a moment of startle or alarm, it doesn't even have to go through conscious processing. It's now a good positive habit. You begin to calm yourself as you go throughout the day. I know that there have been times when I'm under extreme stress or worry or panic. Um, I've done something just naturally like patting my heart, mm-hmm. just patting my heart. I can remember doing that. I, I don't remember the circumstances, but I remember mm-hmm. just automatically doing that. Right. So when you put your hand on your heart, and then you can automatically go into a self-compassion practice, ouch, this hurts. Yeah. This is a moment of suffering. I care about myself. May I be kind to myself. So that's a self-compassion. That's a self-compassion yeah. practice. Yeah. May I accept myself in this moment exactly as I am? There, there's a, a quote from uh, James Baratz, uh, which you point out in the book, and I, I love it. He's been a guest on New Dimensions as well. And he points out, once we can perceive difficult patterns without anxiety, we can work to rewire them. So we might ask ourselves a question, What story am I believing right now? James is one of my teachers, and I've learned to do that from him. What story am I believing now? So to use those together, if you put your hand on your heart, that meets the anxiety. Oh, sweetheart, this is hard. That allows you to be mindful. That allows you to look at whatever is happening without a further reaction. So you're not denying what's happening. You're not denying, but you're not running away from it, and you're not struggling with it. You're just, oh, this is what is. Then you can have an equilibrium. Equilibrium is a physiological state in the body. So you can come back into a physiological equilibrium that allows your mind to ask, what story am I believing now? But you have to be in a somewhat calmer state to remember to ask and to listen to your own answer. And so the putting your hand on your heart is what helps shift so that you can be more open again to reflecting. And then when you ask that question, you can start to hear that belief system that you're trying to rewire, mm-hmm. most likely, mm-hmm. you know, because we're if we're feeling distressed. 
So mindfulness, simply, except it's not so simple, (laughs) but mindfulness allows us to see the patterns without reacting, without resisting, without moving too quickly. And as we see the patterns over and over and over again, we begin to see that patterns are patterns. And emotional cascades are emotional cascades. And a sense of self is a sense of self. And we begin to, you know, I do want to say this. As mindfulness comes to the West, and it's been quite secularized so that it can be brought into the schools and into the hospitals and into the military. And and so now it's taught as attention training. But mindfulness really is a capacity to be aware and to know what you're seeing and to rest in the larger awareness that is holding it. I'm here with Linda Graham. She's the author of Bouncing Back, Rewiring Your Brain for Maximum Resilience and Well-Being. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Linda Graham. She's the author of Bouncing Back, Rewiring Your Brain for Maximum Resilience and Well-Being. Linda, in your book, you describe a little incident that you had um, as you were hiking Yosemite, Mm -hmm. and you came across a group of people, and they were down on their hands and knees, and they were looking very closely at something. This was kind of an... um, an aha moment for you about perspective. Mm-hmm. Can, can you describe what happened there and what this might have to do with mindfulness? Sure. So when I came upon this group of people very high up and way back in, and a ranger had them down on the ground. They were looking at a patch of ground. And I asked him what was going on. He said, it's belly botany. So he gave each Just of them— say that them slowly, belly, belly botany. Botany, okay. All <laughs> so right. each of them had one square foot, which they were to look at and to notice light and shadow and movement and stillness and life and death. And then after you look at your one square foot patch of earth for a while— you stand up, and you're in Yosemite, and you're looking around at thousands of acres, and you realize every acre has thousands of square foot patches with so much going on, and it just expands your mind, your awareness into this much, much larger perspective. The reason that that can work so well is the brain actually has two different ways of processing, at least two different ways of processing information. And I think it's as significant as the difference between the right and the left hemisphere. So the focus mode of processing is when we're paying attention to a task, to details, we're concentrated, and very often that feels very good to the brain to be able to do that. The neuroscientists at first, when they were scanning brains in their scanner, assumed that then when they weren't asking their research subjects to do a specific task, that the brain would be quiet. And what they found out was the brain was noisier than ever. 
which is now called the default network. And when we're not guarding the focused awareness of the brain and it's, we're leaving it to play on its own, the brain all over the brain begins to make its own associations and links and connections. And it's, it's where we experience creativity and imagination and epiphanies and insights and revelations. It's called the default network, and it is where we process our social relationships with people, and sometimes the default network gets a bad rap because if we worry, if we ruminate, do they like me? Did I just make a mistake? What do people think of me? If we start churning on that hamster wheel, then we can get really, really caught, and we're not going anywhere. So sometimes people can come out of that kind of rumination by concentrating on something again. Let me do my gratitude practice. Let me do my loving kindness practice. But it's also possible that when you let go of focus and you just open to open spacious awareness, it's not a problem. It is quiet and peaceful. And so in mindfulness training, we learn both to focus our attention and stabilize the mind so that when we open out to larger spacious awareness again, it's not a problem. We're just in open awareness. So it, it's it's kind of, well, it's kind of daydreaming, allowing ourselves to daydream or to, to just sort of relax and unfocus. Just relax, relax. Most people will experience the default network in terms of daydream and reverie. And uh-huh. then you notice, oh, I never thought of that before. And mm-hmm. something seems to come up out of the blue. But it's just really the brain finding a way to make a link to something that we didn't get there by our own conscious processing. You know, we've read for many, many years that uh, we only use 10% of our brain. But uh, I I think that's not really the case. Can you say something about that? Right. I just I just read something recently that said that's just complete bunk. <laughs> I did too, and I can't remember where I read it, so please tell but, me. But certainly, our brains are working all the time. The brain likes to work. It likes to play. It likes to, you know, it's called a mental play space. And when we're not guiding it and making it do something deliberate, like our algebra or our taxes or something, it will just play and come up with its own stories and its own daydreams. What... Many people experience being in the zone or being in the flow when they're in that state of mind. And they're working, they're writing, they're creating, they're processing, but there's almost no sense of self there. There's no sense of self to get in the way. You're just in the flow or in the zone. And that feels very, very good to the brain. I do want to say something here. The brain is happy when it's focused. The brain is happy when it's playing. The brain is not happy when it has to switch between the two and when it has to switch between the two a lot or very quickly. And when we're on our computers and we're answering emails and we're multitasking and we've got the phone and the dog and the kitchen stove and everything going at the same time, the brain gets fatigued. Ah. And we go into a fog. And people experience that a lot. Oh, all of a sudden, I, I can't think straight anymore. Yeah. And you literally have to get up, walk around, talk to somebody, make a meal, do something to reset the brain. So it's important that we actually monitor how we're using this wonderful gift we have of our brain. Focus is fine. Reverie and playing is fine. Transitioning between the two takes some metabolic energy. We're used to doing that. But when we're multitasking and doing that switching all the time, the brain doesn't like it. 
So what's, what do you suggest we do in these postmodern times? <laughs> um, there are more and more ideas coming along all the time about how to relate to our digital devices in a way that is useful to us and keeps it connected with other people but doesn't fatigue us. And so people are now suggesting, say, answer your emails at particular times of the day and not the rest of the day. Turn off the ping on your computer so that you're not in another room hearing, oh, I just got a message. You're not making the brain do that piece of work. You go check your emails when it's time to go check right, them. Right. To turn off devices by 9 o'clock at night mm-hmm. or for an entire afternoon on the weekend. I mean, just to yeah. make sure that we're not yeah. getting addicted to our devices. You know, there is one thing that, that you talk about in the book that— uh, uh, I have done, and I've never seen anybody write about this uh, or mention it. And this was just, I've got very excited about it because you talk about when we are figuring out options, we might toss a coin. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Oh, yes, yes, of course. I was very excited because I have used this, and you really explain this very very uh, in detail, and I loved it. So share it with our listeners. So usually when we're making decisions, we're trying to do that consciously, and we're weighing the pros and cons. We make our list, the right. benefits and the down downside, the upside. You know, right. we, we try and do it all very rationally. Right. So the thing about the coin toss is, as, you know, Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize for discovering that we don't make our economic decisions rationally. We make them from an emotional base. We make decisions emotionally. And in fact, emotions are an excellent guide to what's important to us and what's really going to make us happier or not. So if you're not sure, you toss a coin. When you see what the decision of the coin is, there is a split second if you're listening to your own intuitive voice that says, oh, I didn't want that. (laughs) <laughs> or, whew, I'm glad. And when you listen to your own intuition, that's what helps you make your decision. Now, that's coming from the bottom up. That's a body-based, emotion-based way of making a decision. So the important thing about that is the coin is not making the decision for you, but you are noticing how your body responds to what the what whatever whether heads or tails comes up and if you respond like oh goody then you know oh that was the right decision but if you respond with oh shucks right then you so you're 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 going to a body wisdom there right and a beautiful way of doing that in an ongoing way there's many many exercises to cultivate a sense of a wiser self or a compassionate friend, and you actually do an exercise to evoke that sense of there's someone older, wiser, stronger, caring on your side that's with you and cares about you. And then sometimes when you have a difficult decision to make, you simply sit down with your wiser self or with your compassionate friend. Imagination is as powerful to the brain as things that happen in real time. So then you ask your compassionate friend, what should I do in this situation? And you listen to what the compassionate friend has to say to you. You're listening to your own deeper intuitive wisdom. And it's simply a way of representing that and having that kind of conversation. You mentioned emotions, and um, I know that you talk about emotions as a gateway to um, 
paying attention and, you know, just it, it, emotions are important. And there's a quote, and it's a quote that I also use and I've run across, uh, if I can find it, is um, it's from Jack Gilbert. I, I actually use it as my sign-off piece in one of my, in my email. I think I saw uh, that in your email. Ah, uh, and here's what the poet Jack Gilbert says. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. I love it. Risk delight. So positive emotions, they they increase our capacity to approach our our lives and make decisions rather than it, it positive emotions fuel resilience i think is the point you make yes. is that right yes so positivity is a direct cause of resilience and we might think it's the other way around that if we're resilient we're going to be happier but the fact is when people are positive the direct outcome of that is resilience and the reason is positive emotions evoke that left shift that we're more approachable to our experience. And what comes from that is we're more approachable to people. We're more receptive to other people and to their ideas. We're more willing to work collaboratively. We're more able to see our options without the automatic judgment or the automatic critic. We do know that the brain is hardwired to pay more attention to and to remember better negative experiences. And we need to have positive experiences, the researchers have found, in a ratio of 3.2 to 1. We need positive experiences to antidote that negativity bias. So we need more positive ones to antidote because negative ones are stronger in well, the, our the brain, neural circuitry? The brain remembers them because it's essential for our survival. Uh. We have to remember something negative or bad so that we don't make the same mistake again or we know what to do. So that's an alarm system. That- part of the alarm system. Whereas the positive, they found that most people tend to experience more positive experiences during the day than negative, but they don't remember them. They're simpler. They're more benign. They don't take as much attention. When you talked earlier about emotions being the gateway, emotions are a signal to pay attention. Something is happening that's important. Negative ones will get our attention. But the positive ones, if we could pay attention to that, will also, you know, that's important too, to take in the delight, to take in the generosity or the kindness. So the researchers have found when people practice positive emotions on a pretty daily basis, and I'll do a little sidebar, that the brain learns better little and often. It learns better doing something five minutes a day every day than for an hour on the weekend. Little right. and often is how the right. brain learns. Okay, So when you do a daily positive emotion practice, and gratitude is often the one that's easiest for people to begin with, people have less anxiety, less depression, less loneliness. They have a better health, better immune system, and they live seven to nine years longer. I'm here with Linda Graham. That's good news, <laughs> telling us the good news. She's the author of Bouncing Back, Rewiring Your Brain for Maximum Resilience and Well-Being. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Linda Graham. She's the author of Bouncing Back, Rewiring Your Brain for Maximum Resilience and Well-Being. And she's a meditation teacher and also a psychotherapist and a mindfulness uh, trainer, I would say. I, I hope that that's okay to say it that way. A trainer in mindful self-compassion. And a trainer in mindful self-compassion. Great. A story in your book that, that's one that I've I've loved for a long time, and it's it's called an autobiograph autobiography in five short chapters, and it's the hole in the sidewalk story. Um, there's a hole in my sidewalk, and I uh, you also talk about how we develop our unconscious incompetence, our conscious incompetence, our conscious competence, and then our unconscious competence. And you kind of relate this to hole in the sidewalk. So I'd love for you to to enlighten us on what that all means. Okay, so Portia Nelson's fabulous poem on the autobiography in five short chapters, where at first we walk down the street, there's a hole in the sidewalk, we fall in. It's an unconscious habit. We can keep walking down the street and falling in the same hole in the sidewalk, but eventually we wake up to, I know that hole is there, and I know it's my fault that I keep falling in it. And eventually, as she says, we walk around it, we walk down a different street. So we're trying to create different habits. We wake up to the habits we have in our brain, and we're trying to create different habits, new habits. So one of my favorite phrases about mindfulness is, it's from my friend Janet Friedman, and you say, catch the moment, make a choice. You have to catch the moment when you're falling the hole or about to fall in the hole, and you make a choice to do something different. Richie Davidson, who's done so much of the neuroimaging at the University of Wisconsin at Madison that provides the data for showing the power of mindfulness to change brain structure and the power of compassion to change brain structure, says that because the brain learns by experience, it's our responsibility to choose the experiences that will rewire the brain in a wholesome direction. So we're making choices all the time about the people we talk to, the activities that we do, the thoughts we carry around in our head. And the more we're making those conscious choices in a wholesome direction to be kind, to be open, to be engaged, to be resilient, the more our brain is going to rewire. So we finally come to a place, the more we practice that, what you call unconscious competence, that we're not even thinking about it anymore. It, That's it an old, kind of an ultimate place. Huh? It becomes part of our procedural memory. And the example most often given is when people ride a bicycle. And at first, it's very hard to ride a bicycle. You fall off a lot. But if you keep going and keep going and you get the rhythm and you get your balance, eventually your body learns how to ride the bicycle. And you do not have to think about riding the bike. 30 years later, you can get on a bike and still know how to do it. So we're cultivating habits that then go into our implicit memory. 80% of the time, we are operating on implicit memory. 20% of the time, we're consciously choosing. So the more new positive habits we can install in our implicit memory, the more efficient we can be. So implicit memory is like those automatic responses. Implicit is outside of awareness. Yes. Implicit is not conscious. And most of the time, we drive to work and tie our shoes and remember the names of our friends out of our implicit memory. So we're trying to cultivate habits like, oh, I'll put my hand on my heart. Oh, I'll practice compassion. We're trying to cultivate those habits consciously so they get stored in our implicit memory and we don't have to think about it anymore. 
There was a wonderful story that you related. Um, I can't remember if it was Daniel Goldman told it, or it was about the fifth grade teacher. Uh, do you remember that, where she had an exercise for her kids, where she had every child write the name of someone? Can you relate oh, yeah. that story? Because it's so, it, was, it made me cry. Well, it often makes people cry. Um, I cry sometimes when I tell the story. I got it from Jack Cornfield. So Jack Cornfield tells this story, and I think now it's gone around the Internet, so many other people may be telling it as well. There was a fifth-grade teacher whose classroom was being very disruptive one day, and the kids were walking around and talking and throwing spitwads. And she just had enough, and she said, Stop. Everyone take out a piece of paper, and they did. They took out their piece of paper. On the left-hand column of the paper, write down the name of every student in this class. In the right-hand column, write down one positive, appreciative statement about each person in this class. So they did that. She took those pieces of paper home that night, cut and pasted them, and brought them back the next morning so that each student had their own sheet with 23 positive comments about them from other students in the class. And the class was very quiet. Many students had no idea that people thought so positively about them. The story is, 10 years later... There was a war in Vietnam, and one of the students in that class was killed in the war, and at the memorial service, after the memorial service was over, the father came up to the teacher and pulled out a piece of paper and said they found this in the pocket of his uniform the day he was shot. And another student walked up and said, I've carried this around in my purse for 10 years. And what, what was the, pa the piece? Of was his piece of paper from the fifth grade. From the fifth grade. Those positive comments. Now... This is also part of this true story. When I tell that story, and it's the introduction to the positivity portfolio of Barbara Fredrickson, which I'll talk about in a moment, someone came up to me. Um, I was giving a talk at the San Leandro Public Library, and someone came up to me afterwards and said, you know, there was one year growing up when we were very poor and didn't have any money, and our mother said, there won't be any presents this year, but everybody writes something nice about everybody else in this family. And she said, that was the first time I knew my brother loved me. Oh. So this idea of being able to receive positive statements from other people about ourselves really rewires our sense of self. So now the exercise that I teach is for people to ask for these kind of positive comments, either in an email exchange or you collect what comes to you in birthday cards, and you make a list of 10 positive comments about you that have come from other people what they appreciate about you or what they admire about you. And you read those 10 comments every day for 30 days. Oh, that's you, really powerful. You will change your sense of yourself. And it's not just hearing them, not just going in the ear, because it, it's, it's more concrete than that. Mm -hmm. You actually see them written on a piece of paper. It gets becomes more... Uh, actual physical. Mm -hmm. And just as people respond to the emotions of hearing the story about the fifth grade class, or even the person who came up to me at the San Leandro Public Library, there's an emotional response to those stories. There's an emotional response when we read these comments, and it's partly that emotion that does the rewiring. So that I was going to ask, so how, what does this have to do with rewiring the brain? 
because as I was talking earlier about rewiring previously negative memories or experiences, you have to light up the whole network. You light up the thoughts and the visual images and the emotions and the body sensations. When you're reading these statements from other people and you're remembering the person and you're remembering your interactions with them and you're feeling in your own body these feelings, you're rewiring yourself from the bottom up. That's beautiful. Another piece that you have in your book that I I found very useful, and this is called Big Organizing Principles. And uh, I really found it very useful because I've done a lot of work and even even taught my own workshops on finding your purpose. Mm-hmm. And this had a little different slant because you're you're saying that that these are like guides to um, our actions when to, and to know what is guiding my actions. And, and so can you talk about that and why that's important to know that? Well, you know, when we first came in and sat down to do this interview, I noticed your mind map. <laughs> and I do mind maps as well. So it's really important periodically to sit down with yourself and listen to your own intuitive wisdom What's really important? What's really authentic? What's true? What has integrity for me? What do I want to guide my life by? Because we need to know that, otherwise we're kind of driving blind. When we have those core values, big organizing principles, when we have our moral compass, so to speak, then that helps us respond to the events of our lives or even create and manifest events in our lives according to our own blueprint, according to our own map. When we're in alignment with that map, we have tremendous power and energy. And when we're not in alignment with it and we begin to drag about resistance, and I'm not sure, and then we just are really derailing ourselves and derailing our resilience. So we might just check in with that list that we've made. with, And you have a suggestion of, of different words that we might mm-hmm. track. And I, I know you, and we only have maybe a minute left, but I know you also say to look for that which you want to manifest and maybe you're not manifesting. Exactly. And, and circle that word. And for, for me, I circle discipline. And, and then mm-hmm. you have a suggestion about how to work with that. Well, part of what I'm saying is when we do all these exercises to make our brain more resilient, and now we can be mindful, and now we can be compassionate with ourselves when we fall off our wagon, then we're able to move the resilience beyond our personal self. This isn't just for us. We're able to move into the world and to be able to take wise, compassionate, effective action in the world. And that really is the point of having that moral compass and having a resilient brain. Because then what we do in the world is going to make a difference for so many people. Well, Linda, I want to thank you so much for being with us on New Dimensions today and filling us with so many images to help us be more resilient. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. It was fun for me, too. I've been speaking with Linda Graham. She's the author of Bouncing Back, Rewiring Your Brain for Maximum Resilience and Well-Being. And if you'd like to know more about her work and her e-newsletter and her e-quotes of resources for um, resilience, you can look at her website, lindagram-mft.net, lindagram-mft.net. 
or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3536. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.